You're listening to episode 67 of the Daily Growth Discipleship Podcast. I'm Chris Lambert. And I'm Josh Havens. And we're on a journey to learn what it means to live a lifestyle of discipleship. We're glad you're joining us and hope that as you set aside this time for God, that he would help you grow today in the everyday moments of life. Today, we are talking to Gary Moon. Gary directs resource development for the Martin Institute through Conversatio Divina, as well as the D-Min program in spiritual direction at Fuller Theological Seminary. He's also helped found several organizations devoted to helping Christians develop in their walk with Christ, including the Martin Institute for Christianity and Culture, the Dallas Willard Center for Christian Spiritual Formation at Westmont College, and the Renovare International Institute for Christian Spiritual Formation. Gary has presented and written many articles on the theoretical and practical integration of psychology and theology. He's also written several books, including Apprenticeship with Jesus and Becoming Dallas Willard, a biography on one of our heroes here at Daily Growth Discipleship. Life is a journey. It sounds cliche, but there's a truth in that statement, especially for Christians as they strive to live a lifestyle of discipleship. When it comes to spiritual formation, we often think that process is meant to form only one part of our journey, the spiritual part. But this misses out on the beautiful whole of our life that God wants to shape and form. He doesn't just want to shape our spirit, but our heart, mind, behaviors, and relationships as well. He wants to shape everything in us to be like Him. But this process is a journey that takes time. And it takes time because we don't naturally want to let him make these changes. In this episode, Gary Moon unpacks a few of the ways God wants to shape us. And his experience in psychology and spiritual formation, along with his wit and humor, are a refreshing perspective on what it means to live a lifestyle of discipleship. Gary, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Really excited to be talking with you. Uh, we got introduced because of our uh, mutual friend, Paul Smith, who's been on the podcast. who's a great guest to talk about, but he has told us so much about you. He even uh-huh. gave us uh, one of your books, Apprenticeship with Jesus. And I got to say, as I've looked into you and I've read your book and uh, I haven't finished the whole thing, I've been going through it slowly because... Your book kind of dictates that a little bit, but uh, so I've been <laughs> been savoring it a little bit. Um, but you have become uh, a hero of mine within the last few weeks, and so it really is an honor to be talking to you um, today. This is amazing. You might be the only one. So yeah, this is- <laughs> I am sure that is not true. <laughs> Paul is, you are definitely a hero to Paul as well. I can tell you that. And so he speaks very highly of you. Um so, yeah, you have a uh, – I think one of the reasons why I was first intrigued, and I think a great place to start the podcast, is like how you and Paul uh, met because you you brought him into a group that you were part of that you guys were doing some pretty extraordinary things with uh, you and Dallas Willard. And it was all about this formation of uh, what became this Conversatio journal. Can you tell us how – Conversatio got started and, and, and the group of you guys, this awesome sure. think tank that you guys were. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be brief with that. Uh, and, and actually, uh, Paul and I predate that a bit. We served on a, uh, a curriculum commission for about 10 years, and it was a lot of fun. You get to 
be with people you like for about three weeks a year, various cities, and uh, half the day you work. And so that was a nice. But about that same time, I was we were starting a journal called, uh, and actually the website conversatio.org and the journal are, are different but related. Uh, so uh, David Benner, Larry Crabb, uh, Dallas Willard to a, to the extent as far as influencing ideas and being a friend. Anyway, we um, started a journal called uh, Conversations, a forum for authentic transformation, pitched it halfway between an academic journal and a magazine, so thoughtful Christians. And uh, it would take too long to bore you with the details, but there was some there was a template that we used. I was very proud of uh, each section. Of the journal corresponded to one of the five uh, components of the person, the, the five things people can do. So in every issue, there was like targeting a couple of articles to the head, to the heart, to the body, to the will and so forth, social. Uh, and then we tried to be um, ecumenical. We tried to hear from uh, at least one voice from each of what Richard Foster would call the uh, streams of living water. So, mm-hmm holistic, ecumenical, about authentic change and transformation. Uh, that ran about a 15-year course, and then, you know, it just became difficult to uh, – it, it was a great audience, but it wasn't huge in the thousands, and um, but not tens of thousands. So the postage and printing became, you know, too much. So that sort of is has evolved into what's called now the uh, conversatio.org or conversatio divina, a website. So how did how did that group of you guys form? How did you get together? Did you just know each other? Did you reach out to one another? Um, it, was it more organic? What, what happened there? Because that's an extraordinary group of people. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the short answer is that the three of us that were the the main editorial team for a while were all psychologists who over time had become more interested in spiritual formation and spiritual direction. So just born out of conversations with uh, Larry Crabb, David Minner, really. And just, oh, I think we had eight, like th- two or three day weekends that, again, were about half work and half fun. And uh, and if I'd known how much work the journal was going to be, I'd say, I would have said, let's just keep meeting. <laughs> <laughs> Because I had a friend, a uh, professor from Fuller Seminary days who had also started a journal. And he, he said, you know, Gary, after the ideas are, are over, it's just a lot of hard work. <laughs> yeah. But but it was fun. It, was, it, it lasted for a while. And, and we're going to bring all those back onto conversatio.org as, as classes because each okay. issue basically is a book built around a spiritual formation theme. That's cool. That's cool. Um. So you mentioned something I didn't – I was thinking about this later, so I'll, and forgive me for just kind of jumping around. You did mention a topic already. Like many of you guys were psychologists, and you started to become more interested in the theological side of things. How has that I, – I, I find this um, this intersection really interesting, and um, it, this has been a, a particular interest of late over the last few years that I've grown to see the real value in the intersection between psychology and, and, and theology – what has how do you view those uh, two things and what has been the value in your life from being able to study psychology as well as understanding theology? Because there's a lot of misconceptions in the church that they are mutually exclusive, that you can only do one or the other and only one has value and the other one doesn't. And people in both camps fight each other all the time. So what's your perspective on that? 
Wow, uh, Chris, that 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 could, uh, could <laughs> a few hours with that, but the uh, too big, huh? <laughs> the, uh, the the abstract of the Reader's Digest version of that might be. Uh, I think you could just as equally say, is it possible to separate them? Uh, so when Dallas Willard wrote a book called Renovation of the Heart, uh, he had chapter titles for these, the, the, the five things a person can do. I sometimes say for fun, if I'm speaking or something, that there are only five things you can do. If you can think of a sixth thing and I'll give you a thousand dollars and I've never had to pay. But I mean, humans can, we can think and feel and behave and choose and relate and that's it. I mean, some things are kind of a combination of those five, but, uh, uh, so, but Willard liked to say, uh, that's all well and good, but the only way you can really separate the components of the person are with chapter titles. Hmm. <laughs> so, so basically there is no separating psychology and theology. It's all, it's, it's all about the human and, and, um, yeah, the, studying to be a clinical psychologist was great. And the place I studied, Fuller's uh, Graduate School of Psychology at the seminary was fantastic. Uh, but there was a sense that some of the best things I learned about psychology came after that and through reading Dallas Willard, because um, even in a seminary setting, there's some resistance to uh, uh, to talking about invisible things. And fortunately, uh, the most crucial aspects of the person are invisible, uh, spirit and soul and consciousness and so forth. Uh, so uh, to me, Willard added a, a, a missing component, and that's that fifth aspect of the person that, that Scripture uses the words interchangeably, heart, will, and spirit for the same thing. If the, if the reference or if the emphasis on the fact that this aspect of you is invisible, uh, uh, non-corporal, uh, uh, then maybe uh, spirit is used. If the emphasis uh, is on more centrality, deepest part of you, often heart would be used. And functionality, what does it do? What does your will, heart, spirit do? Uh, which Willard sometimes calls the CEO of the person. It chooses and creates. Uh, so, um, so if the emphasis is on function, then maybe, then maybe will. But bottom line is, um, Psychology needs to include all the aspects of the person. That seems like a truism, but in the field, it seems, at least in my lifetime of study, each of those components would get about one decade of fame. So for the behavioral 70s, that was kind of focus, or the cognitive 80s, that was a focus, or present day, more the neuropsych emphasis back in the past. Uh, Freudian and 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 then late, later family relations stuff, the relational aspects, but it's it's all there, including what almost everybody uh, leaves out. Uh, is at least in a uh, kind of a secular setting, university setting, is the embarrassingly invisible parts. Spirit, you're, you're hitting on something that is really really huge for us at Daily Growth. We are all about a holistic approach to discipleship and our formation as followers of Jesus. And one of the things we've come to realize is that we tend to, in the church as, as Christians, think that we need to set aside 30 minutes in the morning for spiritual formation. We need to set aside 30 minutes in the evening for spiritual formation. And if you're really great, you do it at lunch as well. Um, 
But what we're finding is that God has been doing a work in our lives more in those everyday moments, those mundane moments when we're sitting in traffic, when we're having conversations with people, when we're eating meals, uh, and all of these together, uh, I think, are form an opportunity for us to to look at what God is doing in our life uh, as a whole. And if we try to focus on any one of those individually, we miss out on what the entirety of our our day is and uh, how God's working yeah. in our lives in the entire day. So I find that really true, and it, it really resonates with us and with our audience, I think. Yeah, and, yeah, and five if, steps. Uh, yeah. The five steps. So anyway, yeah. go ahead. No, no, sorry. Um, <clears throat> if I can drill down on that just a little bit more, because um, I can hear a lot of people saying, uh, you know, they can they can hear you talk about uh, psychology and you know, holistic and inside, outside, all this stuff. Um, are you suggesting though that everybody needs to learn this level of psychology in order to be a good disciple? Or um, I guess, what would you say to the objection of like, well, can't I just, you know, be a good Christian and go to church and pay my taxes and that's all I need to know? So what's the value of actually learning a little bit more of how we work holistically to uh, the way we follow Jesus? Well, yeah, no, I don't think it's necessary to learn all about that. I mean, certainly not unless you're going to be a a people helper of some type. Uh, th- these things aren't things that you have to learn. They're just they're just who you are. Mm-hmm. It's just more a matter about uh, kind of optimal functioning. Let me let me see if this addresses what you're saying, but it also kind of uh, plays off something you said earlier um, about your philosophy of discipleship, which I really like. Um, <laughs> this may seem unrelated, uh, but I'll try to make it relate. I remember driving around once and on the radio, I heard some church was advertising uh, a special series of services and they were emphasizing the um, the worship leader. And they said, this person, may, and they listed the name, uh, is very special. They can really lead you into the presence of God. And I remember thinking immediately, you know what the trick would be if anybody could lead you out of the presence of God. Ooh. <laughs> that, that, that would be an impossibility. And so I like what you're doing and talking about and how maybe psychology in a, in a sense meets spiritual formation or spiritual direction, which is about uh, enhancing the sense of awareness of the constant presence of the Trinity. Mm. and interacting and interacting with Trinitarian presence and carrying that interaction into uh, as many moments of the day as possible. That's good. That's good. See, I, and I have found that to be true in my life as I have, like when I was going through Bible college and seminary, I was always fascinated. It was always interesting psychology, but I never really, I was in that camp that I was like, nah, I'm good. I'll just study theology and, uh, you know, I'll be okay. Um, again, as of late, I've really come to understand how important understanding more about who I am, my the, the psychology and, and how I function as a human being affects the way I live my life. And I would very much put this in our um, our step two category of practice the basics. Um, it, it's it's understanding who I am so that I can build a life uh, that's appropriate for walking with uh, Jesus in a way that. Uh, I think flourishing comes to mind as well mm-hmm. so that I can create and live a flourishing life with him. Um, and, and so if I don't understand myself, 
I won't actually be able to be aware of where my pitfalls are, like certain needs where I've, I have trauma that needs to be dealt with and all of that stuff. <clears throat> Sorry. I swallowed coffee wrong. So my throat's all messed up. It's not, it's not Corona. Um, <laughs> so all of that stuff plays into how I live my life with Christ and to ignore any part of that uh, is to do a detriment to who I, who who God has created me um, to be. And that's why, like, we just got done talking with A.J. Sherrill about the Enneagram, and I think that is a great resource uh, for helping us uh, understand some of our personality and, uh, you know, the pitfalls and the masks that we put on in in the world. And so uh, I just want to say, like, for those people who might see psychology as maybe something you shouldn't worry about or sometimes it's characterized as the church has been overly... um, our, our preaching has just become self-help and too much psychologizing and not enough theologizing. I've heard it said um, that there needs to be a good balance of both and psychology can actually aid in our theological pursuit of uh, understanding um, and knowing God. I couldn't agree more. Um, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And also uh, I've spoken or written about it a little bit. Uh, this kind of is a tribute to Dallas Willard, who I reference way too often when I talk uh, once, three times in an express checkout line in a grocery store. I knew that was over the top. Um, just uh, so, so many things that this life shaping that he would say. Uh, one is to never forget that Jesus was really smart. Mm-hmm. Um, because because you'd be surprised you stand up in front of a group of people and you ask them to name all the smartest people that have ever lived and you might go for a while and no one gets around to Jesus so that Jesus was also very smart and that Jesus also knew psychology uh, it wasn't just invented in the last 150 years um, so yeah it's it, I think it's 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 all the above and the, mis- the mistake would be to just focus on one compartment I mean, a behavioral psychologist can do wonderful things, but it'd be better if they if that person also knew about a lot about cognitive psychology and relationships and the invisible parts of the person. So yeah, it's it's additive, I think. Yeah, um, you you do talk about a, a Dallas word a lot. In fact, you have um, the way that you open apprenticeship with Jesus and I'm going to kind of butcher it, but you kind of uh, appropriate a Dallas Willard quote and. Dallas Willard said that, you know, if he had anything new to say, he wouldn't say it at all or, you know, he would be afraid to. And you say everything that you say is basically Dallas, Dallas Willard has said. <laughs> and so I, I, I love that. Dallas Willard has become a hero of ours again over the last few years. Um, we have these moments, what we call uh, like conversion moments or the most valuable lessons that we've ever learned. And uh, we talk about it a lot on the podcast, how uh, the divine conspiracy converted us in the way that we looked at the Sermon on the Mount. And it just, I went in thinking one thing and I came out thinking yeah. the exact opposite. And so he convinced me and it's changed my entire life in the way that I uh, view and uh, follow Jesus based on his work. What was his influence on your life? And you, you got to know the man and, and talk with him. Uh, you praise him highly. What influence did he have on you? Oh, well, these are some very good questions, and I just it just takes me a while to think uh, about how to narrow the the response. Um, I, well, to start with, I, I didn't know he was on the planet the whole six years I was living in Pasadena. That, that's a real regret in life back in the 80s. 
um, I didn't get to know him until someone, uh, in fact, there were two of us that went through the program at Fuller in Psychology. And the same weekend, someone had been, two people had been to a conference and they put in our hands this, the, the book, uh, The Spirit of the Disciplines. And I read a couple of chapters slowly because it's sort of dense. And I put it away for a while because I thought if I read any more of this, I'll never have another original thought. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, that's exactly how we feel, by the way. <laughs> and, 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 but I eventually returned to it. And, and within a year, I had asked him to, uh, I was, uh, I was uh, a chair of the uh, uh, counseling department, school of psych, uh, counseling at uh, Reach University at the time, and uh, invited him to come and speak at a conference. I didn't know him. He said yes. And then the next 25 plus years, I just kept thinking of excuses to uh, be in the same room with him or things to invite him to do. And he always he always said yes. Um, but, the, 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 you know, I think I can best answer the question this way. Um, Several years back, and this is late in Dallas's life, I was reading a little, a little book called A Beginner's Introduction to the Philokalia. I'm sure not many people have heard of that. Maybe not even the Philokalia. It's a collection of psychology writing, writings on the soul from the year, uh, I think it's, it goes over 11 centuries, I think from the 4th century to the 15th century, 25 writers over time writing about the soul and, and spiritual formation. And so this book was about my speed. It was about a hundred pages pages and it was a beginner's introduction too. So in this book there, I think, I think 20 or 25 terms, each one gets about a four page chapter. And I was reading it for like this six time through devotionally. And so I'm reading People writing about the soul, 25 authors over more than a millennia of time. And I realized, wait a minute, I've written in the margin by each term. Oh, this is where Willard said that. This is where Willard said that. And it was so striking. And in fact, <laughs> the connection between Willard and ancient Christian spirituality is remarkable. And we started a doctor to ministry program in Fuller based on that thought and so where it's like training a spiritual direction that integrates uh, ancient Christian spirituality, Ignatian spirituality, and Willard. So if you think about it, it's you're looking at, at early church, classic Christianity, before there were any Catholics, Baptists, or Methodists, just classic Christianity, no divisions yet. Um, and then later, a reformer, Ignatius, back to classic Christianity, and then later, Willard, if you, if I like to say a, a helper or a reformer, if you will, of evangelicalism, back to some of the ideas of the early church. So that shaped everything for me. Uh, I'll just give you one example. Um, something as basic as salvation. Salvation. And we, so today we might have all this argument about is it, you know, uh, of course, it's grace, but some, uh, is there effort? Some say no effort and all this debate. And it just the early church and Willard have no part of that. Salvation is defined as a synergistic interplay of grace and cooperating with that grace. Salvation, the word means the Greek word means or sozo means healing is a healing journey toward union with God. It, that little thing, and there are dozens of them, changes everything. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, but it's not changing it to something strange that someone thought up. It changes it to what the thinking was uh, in the uh, in classic Christianity in the in the thriving days of the early church. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. Those are the those are that's exactly what we're talking about when we say what's the most valuable thing that you've learned in the Christian life. It's those moments where you encounter some idea or have an encounter with Jesus that. Once you have that encounter, nothing else can ever be the same. You change forever. Um, with that, go ahead. No, no, I was okay. just. Um, I'm going to take what might feel like a left turn here, um, but since we're talking about this idea of salvation, I'm curious. When did you come to faith in Christ? Were you did you grow up in the church, or did you come to faith later? Well, that might answer everything. Um, uh, <laughs> so. For for about 25 years or more, I would reference a specific moment in in time. I was five or six years old. Uh, I was attending a church my father was uh, pastoring, which was convenient as a five-year-old. I couldn't drive. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, he had brought in a, a salvation specialist, and it was just... Uh, fiery, uh, literally uh, fiery and about fire sermon about uh, the afterlife and the great possibilities of me becoming a rotisserie item. And I was frightened and I knew I was supposed to do something. There was an altar call, went down front, I, uh, went, came back to my seat, showed my mom how my uh, the white sleeve on my shirt was wet and from crying and um and for 25 years, I would say that was the night I got saved. So, and there's, and because I believe uh, the Trinity, uh, Jesus respected that, that impulse of a five-year-old. I don't think that's necessarily not true, but it's also true that I'm not sure anything set back my salvation more than that moment. Mm. Because uh, someone told me and created pictures of a God that was mean and capricious and angry and and would do things that uh, a, a committee com comprised of uh, Hitler and uh, and uh, Genghis Khan probably wouldn't come up with. And so I was glad that I bought the quote unquote fire insurance policy. But later, and Willard is involved here, when he reminds that. Uh, the only time Jesus uses uh, or defines, not uses, the only time Jesus defines eternal life is found in John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, eternal living, to know, to be in an intimate, knowing, transforming friendship, the Trinity. So that first moment, while I think respected and honored by God, was actually a great impediment to stepping into John 17, 3. I wanted, as a five-year-old and later, wanted a religious system of managing God's wrath. But as far as wanting to be with God, as you're talking about through the moments of the day, I didn't really. A couple of revivals a year, uh, Sunday morning would be plenty. I, I had a life to run, uh, and I was also pretty frightened of what God might be. So it really started more uh, later in life as far as the journey of, of John 17, 3. So 
I, I kind of thought you might answer that question that way, and I'm so glad that you did because I, I think it does. It helps dispel this idea that, uh, well, number one, that we have to only have one conversion moment. Like, you know, like this is a, I feel, you know, I, I think there's a, there, if you look back on life, I've said it this way before, like five years ago, I don't feel like I understood the gospel at all compared to how I understand it now. But five years ago, I would say that about myself uh, you know, five years before that. And I hope five years from now, I hope to say it about myself right now. And so if our knowledge of who God is and our relationship with him is growing in that way, like, I don't know if you can just always, I, I think you're right. God obviously does honor like those, those, those points in times, but man, if we are not being saved to be with him, if we don't understand that that's what we're doing here, um, I don't really know what, what kind of uh, God we're actually serving. And so that has also changed my life very much the same way. And and so, um, you know, grew, I grew up in Southern uh, Pentecostalism as, as well, uh, similar to you. And so um, I understand that, uh, that sentiment. I don't think I, I don't, I didn't have quite that that fear that that you have uh, described, but I didn't understand the purpose of what, what what I'm getting saved to. I think we do a good job of saying, "What are you saved from?" Right? That's hell. But what are you getting saved to? What is God calling you to? What kind of life is He inviting you uh, to live with Him? And that's the thing that that I think our heartbeat is is breathing here with daily growth is to say, "There's got to be something more, like than just." Like, you know, just going to church on Sundays and, you know, uh, checking the boxes and paying your tithe like that. But uh, invitation into God's life is is an exciting journey um, that's full of joy in life. That doesn't mean that it's not it doesn't have hardships with it. Actually, I'm about to quote to you, Willard. <laughs> See, and I've said this several times before, but it was um, it, I think Willard talks about it in the spirit, uh, spirit of the disciplines when he talks about the easy and light yoke of Jesus. And yeah. what makes that the thing? And, yeah. and that idea that it, it's the only way, it, the only way that we can have that easy and light yoke is to give over everything. And to that degree that which we don't feel that his burden is easy, it indicates that there's something that you haven't yet given over to him. <laughs> and so it allows you to endure all the pains and hardships of life uh, with joy because it's not you uh, doing it on your own, but it's but it's now Christ who does it through you. Anyway, and I'm still trying to figure that out. I'm like, that is one of those things that I'm going to chew on for years and years to come um, the, because the, that's a mystery. The, the secret of the easy yoke is what you're talking about. Yes. The Dallas, right? yes. it's a mystery, you know. But that's an incredible insight that, uh, that I never had thought about before. Yeah. I, I, I give you a quick reflection on uh, at least what I do with that, I think I think it's what it means with that, and it's not it's not a a trick question or response. He 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 really does mean it, but I think uh, I think what makes it uh, seem both uh, easy and difficult is um, I, I, I sometimes think the um, the second cross C R O S S doesn't get enough attention. I mean, we we talk a lot about the cross of Christ and how in, in the incredible importance of it. We talk a little bit less about our our personal cross, or if we do, we might do it in the sense, well, I guess I've got to. Uh, I mean, I ordered a, a steak rare and it came well done. I guess I'll just just be my personal cross and I'll just be unassertive for Jesus. But that but that's not it at all. Um, 
the 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 cross where our uh, egoic operating system dies or begins to die or is morally morally wounded, and that's why I think uh, anyone who has taken the first step of AA and they really meant it with all of their heart, then they understand the personal cross. Uh, I give up. Uh, I mean, there is a God. It's not me. I give up. Uh, I need help. I can't do this on my own. Uh, so <laughs> we we are called to a personal altar. We're called to be living sacrifices. But as Richard Foster likes to say, there's a problem with that. Uh, living sacrifices uh, often crawl off the altar. Uh, the, the The easy cross is the personal, in my opinion, is the personal resurrection Easter experience after dying or mortally wounding the egoic operating system. It's only an easy cross when we stop struggling and say, I have no will but the will of God. Mm-hmm. At that point, the cross is easy. To that, the yoke is easy. Uh, either way, I can use them interchangeably. But un- until that point, uh, it's kind of like um, uh, Carl Jung said, Carl Jung, famous psychologist, said, um, had a, a quote that neurosis is inefficient suffering. Neurosis is, in other words, in other words, you're not dead. You haven't, you're, you're, you're still participating in the tug of war and the struggles as opposed to saying, I give up. Yeah. This has been me. I can't, I, I, I must have help. I must have a, 24-hour-a-day, constant companion, companion, transforming friendship with the Trinity. And then I think we understand the personal cross, and then I think we start to understand the uh, the easy yoke notion. So is that – that's what it means to die to ourself then, right? Uh, die, yeah, to die, to die to the part of myself that still thinks that life independent and separate from God is a good idea. To die to the part of myself that, you know, we talk about the Garden of Eden. Uh, don't I think we wake up to that situation every day of our life. We wake up every day of our life. Which tree we're going to eat from? Uh, tree of life what your podcast is about living in an ongoing transforming willing uh, relationship with the trinity or uh willfulness uh to to unplug uh i, I sometimes think about it i don't know if this isn't helpful then uh, i don't know play music over it or something but um, i mean that, that's um <laughs> i sometimes describe adam and eve as like um my Apple computer that I'm speaking to you from that I have a little bit too much of a fond relationship for. I mean, it's pretty special and we spend a lot of time together every day. Uh, and it helps me spell when I could never spell very well before. And so if I unplug it from life, from electricity, uh, it's still good for about seven hours. In fact, the one that now the one this one replaced was only good for about seven minutes toward the end, but it's still good for about seven hours. But then it's going to die. Is it? Is it uh, bad? Is it? Is it guilty? Is it any less fantastic for what it could do? No, but it's going to die. So the early church salvation. Well, uh, <laughs> salvation is 
the journey toward uh, the, the healing journey toward union with God. Uh, basically, plug back in, plug it back in. You don't have to eat from the wrong tree all day long. You don't have to live uh, independently out of an egoic operating system. You can live in unity. Um, then you don't die. That's what John 17, 3 says. And this is eternal life uh, to know the Father, the Son, whom he sent, Holy Spirit implied. Um, and that that is just routine living through the day. Yeah. Unplugging, living on my own, thinking I know better, and it's all if it's going to be, it's up to me. I'm in control. I've got to make this better. I've got to get this done. There's no easy yoke in that, but I'm eating from the wrong tree as well. Mm-hmm. It's not eternal living at that moment. How does identity play into this? These two decisions that we're making here, um, because this is this is at the heart of why we are doing what we're doing is um, because it seems like it seems like identity can motivate those decisions if we get it right. The difficulty I think comes um, at least for me and and I know others is to think again, this idea of dying to yourself and separating like, who am I dying to from my identity? Because if I'm dying to myself, what happens to my identity? So is it is it a bringing up of my identity, a crushing of my identity? What's happening here uh, within this interplay you're talking about? All right, look, I'm, I'm going to back up two steps, but I think it it, it might be helpful. Um, so another Willardism, uh, he would talk about the the them model, vision, intention, means. All right, and and he would say, or and. <laughs> Or I like to say that any new and complex learning requires them, vision, intention, means. For example, uh, the language I studied in high school was French. I did not have much of a vision for learning French. I may have had occasional thought that I might be able to impress uh, a someone I would be dating in the future by ordering from a, a fancy menu. That's about as far as my vision went. Uh, my intention was very weak. I, I just want to graduate from high school. And the means uh, weren't great. Uh, I, 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 my French teacher is beloved, but uh, she had a much stronger Southern accent than even I do. And there wasn't like Duolingo apps or cell phones. And so I, it, it, so I don't know 10 words of French today. If I could travel back in time and talk to myself and say, let me tell you how important it's going to be to learn Spanish. And I had a new vision, a motivational vision for learning Spanish, and I would have the intention would follow. And then if in the best of worlds, if the means were improved, uh, I would be in much better shape. Um, In fact, I think I've learned more Spanish on Duolingo in the last two months than I've learned uh, certainly than I learned in two years in high school. Uh, so what am I trying to say? Dallas would say, what's the most important thing in, in them is vision. What are the most two important things to revision? God and ourselves. God and ourselves. He liked to say to pastors, you know, 80% of your sermons should be on vision. If you give the right vision for who God is, how loving and magnificent and wonderful and how smart Jesus is. Uh, and, and that what's being offered is the things that you most want in life. Uh, 
love, peace, joy, relationship, harmony, then <laughs> you don't have to trick people or have a, use heavy marketing to get people to come to church. You have what they want, and they want to learn through vision, intention, means how to do that. But first, vision. How does the person see God? And Kirk Kleinger is a friend who, you know, made a career doing the God views uh, presentations where he would describe six heretical views of God and then, and then take his time telling, retelling the prodigal son story in modern setting. Incredibly powerful. But if our vision of God is wrong, like mine was as a five-year-old, we're, we're not going to want to step into John 17, 3. But, but also, our vision of ourselves, uh, Trevor Hudson, a friend from South Africa, uh, who did a little jail time uh, with Desmond Tutu fighting against apartheid, um, um, does a teaching called the Belovedness Charter. And Regina and I, in doing retreats, in doing them kind of retreats, will will repeat it. It's it's mind-boggling to realize the faulty pictures people have of God and themselves uh, as 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 guilty, as worthless, as low down, good for nothing, miserable, and they just look past all the incredible things in scriptures about a scripture about how. We are uh, beloved and what our values value to the Trinity is and how uh, angelic beings may look on and marvel and and uh, <laughs> being invited into uh, e eternal living that if if those two visions get straight, it's almost like everything else takes care of itself. If they don't get straight, it's just kind of white knuckle determination and whistling in the dark. Yeah, that's, that's great. You know, it, you actually said some, you know, something that we've said before too, right? If you get that vision, right, or if you get your identity in, in Christ, right, it's almost like everything else will take care of itself. I mean, it, you can be intentional and you should be intentional about it, but, um, uh, we, we, we I trust the Holy Spirit at that point to really take over and he is going to, uh, you know, lead you to where you need to go if you get that vision correctly. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's a great point. Which isn't which isn't too dissimilar to what uh, John Piper says when he talks about Christian hedonism. Mm -hmm. uh, the chief end of man is to to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. the The idea being that if yeah. we can catch a glimpse of who Jesus really is as the all satisfying Creator, mm -hmm. there's there's nothing else in life that would ever pull us away from that. Yeah. And so for him, it's how can I, how can I see God for who he is? Yeah. So that's my next question. <laughs> how can we, and, and maybe this is related to spiritual disciplines, which is uh, kind of where I was going to go next. Um, but how can we grasp this vision or overcome these faulty visions of, of God that we have had in the past? And, uh, and I guess also be assured that the one that we have now is, is, is correct or uh, a good working model, maybe. <laughs> I give you Willard's simple heresy check. Uh, and it's it, it, it's easy to remember. It's one sentence. It's an imperative. Um, don't ever, ever, ever let anyone tell you anything bad about God. Hmm. I would start with that. 
if we're having an image of God that is anything less than the prodigal son's father, stop, stop. Um, just um, if there's anything we think about God saying or doing that we can't imagine Jesus saying or doing it, stop. That's definitely that would be heresy as well. He just made a, a a real problem with the differentiating members of the Trinity in terms of focusing on the sameness. So, I mean, those are probably the two most helpful things to me. Um, yeah. Those are great. Very simple. And I, I, I think you're exactly right. Um, everything needs to come through that lens of Jesus Christ. Uh, that is the fullest revelation of who God is. And so if, if it doesn't match up, like you're right, if you can't see Jesus doing it, there's, there's a good chance um, you're drifting off into that heresy uh, world. If you can't, you can't see the prodigal father, the prodigal son's father doing it, then I would I would worry about that, too. Hey, this is a little bit, um, I don't know if this is helpful or not, but on a personal note, I'd say the last year, one of the most helpful things I've thought about when it comes to thinking about God, and it came from an unlikely place. I was reading an introduction to a book. Uh, it was written by um, an individual who was trying to... Um, kind of bring science and religion together. And he just made this seem like almost a throwaway comment, but about how that, uh, you know, in, in physics, there's just kind of assumed that the universe exists in 10 or more dimensions. And I just put the book down at that point because for the first time in my life, I understood awe, awe. Um, which I think is a far better word than fear. And more on that in just a second. But just this notion that the Trinity created a 10 or more dimensional universe lives in that universe. And we live in, we have fallen into a four dimensional world. The, the awe of that, that, yes, God is like the prodigal son's father. Yes, we have the concrete picture of God in, in, in the life and teaching of Jesus. And then it's so far beyond anything we can imagine or think about. Ten dimensions, we can't even think about that. But yet that's how awe-inspiring God is. So a loving presence like Jesus who is that uh, awe-inspiring itself for me. And I think that's probably also... Um, I think it would be a, a, a helpful devotional practice to take some time and whenever the word salvation is seen in scripture, just insert uh, healing. It's not, that's not a radical. That's, that's what the word sozo means just to see what that does for a person. Cause if our thoughts are entirely courtroom and judgment and wrath and guilt, then we're missing, but wait, 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 what are we being healed from and to, so healing. And the other would be when there's references to fear in terms of God and our approach to God, to insert the word uh, awe, because that's one thing that psychology tells us. Uh, it is impossible to be fearful and loving at the same time. It is impossible to be afraid and laughing at the same time, unless it's some kind of weird kind of life. But my, my point is the, the two primary nervous systems in the body, sympathetic and parasympathetic. Sympathetic is activated if you're by fear. You're walking in the woods and a bear jumps out and shows its teeth. All of a sudden, your body is prepared to fight or flee. Depending on the size of the bear, flee is probably the better option. 
the parasympathetic turns that off and it's the exact physiological opposite. It's what's happening when someone is laughing, when they are totally relaxed, when they're in love. And so it's like, of course, perfect fear uh, casts out love. And the other and the other thing is true as well, because they're physiological opposites. We can be in awe of a 10 dimensional loving God and in love. You can't be staring at a bear and afraid of it and in love with it at the same time. Mm-hmm. You might laugh, you might laugh, but it's probably a crazy laugh that will get you in the psychiatric hospital. It, those, they just don't exist together. Yeah. <laughs> at that point, if you're laughing, that's probably one of those coping mechanisms, uh, you know, where your brain is sort of splitting itself into a schizophrenic state. Right. Um, that's great. Um, last two questions here. Uh, so how do, how do spiritual disciplines then help us become more like Christ in, in putting all of this stuff uh, into to action? Or, or maybe a better way of saying it is, is what role do spiritual disciplines uh, play in our life if we are who, you know, if we're saved, we are in God, this is our life in him. Why do we need the spiritual disciplines? What are their, what are their role for us? Well, I think I think viewing spiritual disciplines correctly is hugely important, and it creates all kind of a misunderstandings, a misunderstanding to view them incorrectly. I mean, for example, uh, would Jesus ever invent a system for spiritual growth and formation where the Pharisees would win? Uh, no. Okay, so <laughs> if I'm thinking about spiritual disciplines that way, that's okay. Something's wrong. So. If, if I'm if I'm talking to someone and I feel like, OK, there might be that kind of a baggage of spiritual disciplines, I'll just remind of three simple things. First thing I might say, and we don't have time to, to really do it, but I'll ask a group to um, come up with 10 things that you have done on a date or with you if you're married with your spouse that you really just enjoy and enhances the being with the person. And they'll come up with lists of, you know, uh, walking by a lake or uh, talking about a movie after seeing it, reading a book together, reading a Sunday paper, holding hand, you know, on and on and on. And it just, it's kind of fun. And so the first way to think about a spiritual discipline is that way. Okay. What are 10 things that you do that enhance your sense of withness with God? What, what makes you more aware of God's presence? Uh, and so that is a spiritual discipline. They are designed to, at one level, increase awareness of presence and enjoyment of presence. Second thing I might do, I think I got this from uh, uh, Jamie Smith, uh, but I ask, where's the letter S on your typewriter? And you'll see as people kind of with their left hand, they will be showing you how why why did they know that because they went through the discipline of all the typing class the over and over and over and over and over and over until eventually the letter s is embedded in their body that's a spiritual discipline Mm -hmm. things that i can do that help embed in my body more of an automatic response toward virtue instead of vice uh, last thing is like the third level down for me anyway, is they can be seen as specific treatment strategies for bad habits. And I think you don't want to start with the third one. I think you want to start with, uh, the, you know, the, the date thing and then, and then how things can be in, in embodied or can re 
re <laughs> re inhabit the body or however you might want to say that. Um, but uh, say if someone says someone has a a vice or a problem with uh, with gossip, um, then then the discipline of solitude might be a good practice for a while. Because they come to realize, no, I don't have to say the first thing that comes to my mind. And there is value in not doing that. But so each discipline, in fact, Willard puts them in two categories, disciplines of abstinence, things that we don't do, and disciplines of engagement, the invitation to, to do something. And uh, typically those disciplines can be seen as sort of treatment strategies for sins of omission or sins of commission. Okay. Yeah. If, uh, if, I, uh, if, if I am gossiping, my not doing muscle needs to be strengthened. And so a discipline of abstinence would be silence. Did I say silence the first time for gossip or did I say fasting? Solitude. Sol- yeah, sol- solitude. Solitude or silence. Yeah. 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 Those are good. And I think, um, and, and Willard has really helped open my eyes to this as well, that these these disciplines, even in that third category you just gave, it, it doesn't have to be the old uh, pharisaical law that you put down even. Even those can be seen, I think, in that first category to a degree of its relationship building. And so, like, uh, you know, I think of, like, if me and my wife are having a particular problem or something like that, maybe we do need to set aside some time or be more intentional in participating in a certain practice in order to, to bring us together. And so, uh, yeah, maybe it's because I keep flying off the handle or getting angry or something like that. But what, so what is the practice that's going to, like, I'm not doing it just for myself in that case, I'm doing it so that we are drawn closer together in this instance. And so I love that emphasis on that. These spiritual disciplines are really just the means of, for us to connect and to communicate with each other. And again, it all goes back to this Becomes a no-brainer. It becomes easy, almost that easy light yoke of Jesus. If we get that vision correct, if our vision is to walk and be with Him, then these disciplines are just the way in which we go about living our life. And it almost becomes something that you do naturally, just because you want to be with the person. That's right. You, it's that S key. I yeah. can't. I literally can't think about it without moving my finger. And yeah. so <laughs> that's, it, that's it. And when it becomes, when you're doing it naturally, that's kind of the, the saint making is that you do without thinking about it, it just flows out of you. And if someone is feeling about the disciplines kind of puffed up or, you know, I need, you know, kind of <laughs> virtue signaling around spiritual disciplines, uh, you, you know, it's probably important to remember that spiritual disciplines are remedial strategies. Yeah. <laughs> if, 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 a, if a person who does the next right thing without thinking, uh, that's the product of a lot long life with God. If I can't do the next right thing without thinking, then I need a remedial strategy. There's nothing puffed up about practicing spiritual disciplines. It's That's good. That's a good way of looking at that. Oh, man, Gary, I feel like we could talk for a few more hours. We're probably going to have to have you back on the podcast at some point and continue the conversation. But I did promise one last question. Where can people go to continue learning after this podcast ends about uh, your work, get connected with you, um, or you can plug whatever you'd like? <laughs> oh, no, I don't have anything to plug. Other than, uh, I... Um, um, <laughs> uh, 
I, I wrote a biography of Willard called Becoming Dallas Willard. I'm kind of proud of. And otherwise, um, so, so I work for the Martin Institute, Dallas Willard Center, Westmont College. And we moved back home to the southeast not long ago. And so I just I do the um, resource development aspects of it now. It's called Conversatio Divina. But the website for this is called conversatio.org. Converse, conversation without the N, conversatio.org. And that's where we just, um, uh, it's just, it's, um, we have a, 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 a warehouse room uh, or a, uh, um, a media room, uh, thousands, hundreds, and really maybe a couple thousand hours of Willard's teaching and articles and so forth. But we're not just focusing on Willard. We're focusing on uh, authentic voices of change and transformation that have stood the test of time. And then there are three rooms. And then from this media room, there's, you'll find exercise rooms. Where can I practice some of this? And then finally, a classroom, classrooms where we're trying to turn it into uh, learning experiences. Yeah. And I highly recommend everybody go uh, check it out. Conversatio, I was mispronouncing it.org. Um, and uh, we've got links to it in the show notes. So if you can't spell it for whatever reason, you can go down there and click it. We'll take you right over there. Um, Gary, thank you so much for being on the podcast uh, with us today. This has been insightful. I will be re-listening to this episode uh, several times in the weeks to come because this is this has been so rich. So thank you for that. Very nice to meet both of you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. How can you create a lifestyle of discipleship? Most Christians think discipleship is a program or a few practices thrown in at the beginning or end of the day. But we want to help you create a lifestyle where walking with Jesus throughout the day is not only possible, but natural. And we have a tool that's going to help you do just that. It's called the Daily Growth Journal. It's a guided journal that's going to help you become secure in your identity with God and authentically walk with Him in your daily life. Growing daily in your walk with Christ is possible if you cultivate a lifestyle of discipleship. And the Daily Growth Journal will help you do just that. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Daily Growth Discipleship Podcast. To find out more about Gary's work, check out conversatio.org. If you like what you've heard this week, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast player you use. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to stay up to date on everything happening at Daily Growth Discipleship, go to dailygrowthdiscipleship.com and subscribe for free. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify.